Good morning, and welcome to the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. We're a spiritual and spirited community dedicated to the free and responsible search for truth and meaning, and dedicated to being in right relationship with one another, with our community, and with the earth. I welcome you here this morning. Even though we can't be together, we are together for this moment in time. As we come from our living rooms and from our bedrooms and from our kitchens, we come from all different places geographically. All of you all are welcome here. We come from a heritage of teaching that there's a spark of the divine within everyone. And so we recognize the divine in our midst by greeting one another in the comments if you are watching on a device and at a time where the comments are available to you. We light this chalice so that its flame may signify the spiritual strands of light that bind our hearts and souls with one another. Even while we must be physically apart, we bask in its warmth together. Our call to worship today comes to us from Diane Ackerman. Miss Ackerman is a white American poet, essayist, and naturalist, known for her wide-ranging curiosity and poetic explorations of the natural world. She's received a Henry David Thoreau Award for Nature Writing, the Orion Book Award, John Burroughs Nature Award, Visionary Artist Award, the Guggenheim Fellowship, the Levon Poetry Prize, among others, as well as being lionized as a literary lion by the New York Public Library. She also has the rare distinction of having a molecule named after her. Hear now her words. The great affair, the love affair with life, is to live as variously as possible to groom one's curiosity like a high-spirited thoroughbred, climb aboard, and gallop over the thick, sun-struck hills every day. Where there is no risk, the emotional terrain is flat and unyielding, and despite all its dimensions, valleys, pinnacles, and detours, life will seem to have none of its magnificent geography, only a length. It began in mystery, and it will end in mystery. But what a savage and beautiful country lies in between. This congregation has a mission, and we wrote it ourselves. We revisit it every seven years. We write it on the wall of our sanctuary, and we say it together every Sunday. Together, we nourish souls, transform lives, and do justice to build the beloved community. If you would like to know what the beloved community means to us, there is a wonderful description at the Martin Luther King Jr. Center. Every Sunday, we have what we call a moment for beloved community, where we learn a little something. We examine our internalized racism. We look at the world with new eyes. We ask new questions and we acknowledge mistakes, 
This Sunday, I would like to read you something that an African-American friend who is a member of a church I used to serve posted. Your black friend is trying to be okay. Your black friend in the past 30 days has watched a black man get shot dead while jogging, Ahmaud Arbery. A black woman gets shot dead while sleeping, Breonna Taylor. And the murder of George Floyd by four Minneapolis police officers. Your black friend has also listened to the President of the United States use segregationist words as a veiled threat. Your black friend is trying to be okay. Please don't ask us about the looting. Please don't chastise us about the rioting. Please don't tell us that all lives matter. Please don't minimize our fear. Please don't bring up black-on-black crime. Please don't ask, what about Chicago? Please don't say, if you would just act like Oprah Winfrey, Obama, Colin Powell, Denzel, or Will Smith, please don't judge us. Your black friend is trying to be okay. Listen to your black friend. Empathize with your black friend. Support your black friend. Pray for your black friend. Pray with your black friend. Just let your black friend know you really care. Your black friend will remember who truly had their back during this difficult time. They'll remember who was more concerned about a looted target. They'll remember you posting a thinly veiled and racially offensive meme. They will remember you calling looters savages. They will remember your silence about their black life and the black lives of others. It's real easy. Do whatever you can to help your black friend because your black friend is trying to be okay. Scientist by Andrea Beatty, illustrated by David Roberts. Ada Marie, Ada Marie, said not a word till the day she turned three. She bounced in her crib and looked all around, observing the world, but not making a sound. She learned how to climb and made her big break with a trail of chaos left in her wake. She ran through the day chasing each sound and sight and didn't slow down till she conked out at night. Her parents were frazzled, but tried not to freak, as Ada grew bigger and still did not speak. Clearly, young Ada, with lots in her head, would have something to say when it ought to be said. That's just what happened when Ada turned three. She tore through the house on a fact-finding spree and climbed up the clock, just as high as she could. Her parents yelled, stop, as all good parents would. Ada's chin quivered, but she did not cry. She took a deep breath, and she simply asked, Why? Why does it tick, and why does it talk? Why don't we call it a granddaughter clock? Why are there pointy things stuck to a rose? Why are there hairs up inside of your nose? She started with why, and then what, how, and when. By bedtime, she came back to why once again. She drifted to sleep as her dazed parents smiled at the curious thoughts of their curious child who wanted to know what the world was about. They kissed her and whispered, you'll figure it out. Her parents kept up with their high-flying kid whose questions and chaos both grew as she did. 
Even Miss Greer found her hands were quite full when young Ada's chaos wreaked havoc at school. But this much was clear about Miss Ada Twist. She had all the traits of a great scientist. Ada was busy that first day of spring, testing the sounds that make mockingbirds sing, when a horrible stench whacked her right in the nose, a pungent aroma that curled up her toes. Zowie, said Ada, which got her to thinking, what is the source of that terrible stinking? How does a nose know there's something to smell? And does it still stink if there's no nose to tell? She rattled off questions and tapped on her chin. She'd start at the start where she ought to begin. A mystery, a riddle, a puzzle, a quest. This was the moment that Ada loved best. Ada did research to learn all she could of smelling and smells, both the stinky and good. One hypothesis Ada thought could be true, the terrible stink came from dad's cabbage stew. She tested and tested, but soon Ada knew it was time to come up with hypothesis too. Then, Zowie, the stink struck again, just like that. Hypothesis two, it's caused by the cat. The cat couldn't make such a stink on its own. It needed perfume and some fancy cologne. So young Ada tested. The test was a flop. She started again, but her parents yelled, Stop! Ada Marie, Ada Marie, to the thinking chair now, by the time we count three. Enough, said her mother. That's it, said her dad. Her parents were frustrated, frazzled, and mad. Why, Ada questioned. Her mother said, no. What, Ada queried. Her father said, go. You've ruined our supper. You've made the cat stink. Enough with your questions. Now sit there and think. She looked at her parents. Her heart turned to goo. Poor Ada Twist didn't know what to do. She sat all alone by herself in the hall, and Ada, once more, could say nothing at all. And so Ada sat, and she sat, and she sat, and she thought about science, and Stu, and the cat, and how her experiments made such a big mess. Does it have to be so? Is that part of success? Are messes a problem? And while she was thinking, what was the source of that terrible stinking, Ada Marie did what scientists do. She asked one small question, and then she asked two. And each of those led her to three questions more, and some of those questions resulted in four. As Ada got thinking, she really dug in. She scribbled her questions and tapped on her chin. She started at why, and then what, how, and when. At the end of the hall, she reached why once again. Her parents calmed down and they came back to talk. They looked at the hallway and just had to gawk. No patch of bare paint could be seen on the wall. The thinking chair now was the great thinking hall. They watched their young daughter and sighed as they did. What would they do with this curious kid who wanted to know what the world was about? They smiled and whispered, 
We'll figure it out. And that's what they did. Because that's what you do when your kid has a passion and heart that is true. They remade their world. Now they're all in the act of helping young Ada sort fiction from fact. She asks lots of questions. How could she resist? It's all in the heart of a young scientist. And as for that smell, what can Ada Twist do but learn all she can with her friends in grade two? Will they discover the stink that curls toes? Well, that is the question. And someday, who knows? The end. There was a Japanese Zen master named Nanian who lived during the Meiji era, 1868 to 1912. During his days as a teacher, he was visited by a university professor curious about Zen. Being polite, Nanian served the professor a cup of tea. As he poured, the professor's cup became full, but Nanian kept on pouring. As the professor watched the cup overflow, he could no longer contain himself and said, It is over full. No more will go in. Nanian turned to the professor and said, Like the cup, you are too full of your own opinions and speculations. How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? Please join me as you can in an attitude of meditation and prayer. Let us breathe together. Many of us participated in the almost nine minutes of silence that we observed yesterday in memory of George Floyd. We will not be silent that long. It was incredibly long. Unbelievably unimaginable that someone knelt on his neck for that long. Let us join together in silence asking for clarity, asking for love in our hearts, asking for action to be awakened within us, asking to know when to rest. Let us enter the wise silence together.
I was in second grade, I had a very pretty young teacher named Miss Speaks. One of the things I remember about her the most was that she would say, let's all take out a new piece of paper and start fresh. I loved the sound of start fresh. I would pick out the new piece of paper from my desk, which opened this way, and I would try with my number two pencil to make the letters so that the top of the letter hit the top line and the bottom of the letter hit the bottom line and the middle part of the letter hit the dotted middle line. And the first couple of words were great. And then I would get going too fast or I would just want to get done or I would start thinking about something else and uh, the letters would slide down below the line or not quite meet the dotted line and my handwriting was messy and she would come around and look at our handwriting and she would make encouraging noises but you could tell the kind of encouraging noises teachers make when they don't think you did very well that was better than the third grade teacher who would just come around and suck her teeth and sigh Starting Fresh has been appealing my whole life. And yet, I find I know less and less how to do that, how to start fresh as I gather thoughts, opinions, relationships, areas of expertise. Our forebearer, Henry David Thoreau, wrote about useful ignorance. He wrote, A person's ignorance sometimes is not only useful but beautiful. While his knowledge, so-called is oftentimes worse than useless, besides being ugly. Which is the best person to deal with? He who knows nothing about a subject and, what is extremely rare, knows that he knows nothing, or he who really knows something about it but thinks that he knows all. You heard the Zen teaching story about the Zen master visited by the expert who is pouring a tea for the expert and he pours and pours until the tea runs over the cup and he says to the expert your mind is like this cup is so full already there's no room for anything else in there that expert had spent years filling himself with knowledge experience opinions techniques and stories with which to communicate what he knew was all that wasted Of course not, says the woman who has spent years filling herself with knowledge, experience, opinions, techniques, and stories with which to communicate what she knows. It is important, though, to practice what Zen master Shunryu Suzuki calls beginner's mind or Shoshin. When you can empty yourself of preconceptions, expectations, and opinions... Your mind is freer, it's relaxed, it's curious. It goes from being a clenched fist to an open, relaxed palm ready to receive. A Korean Zen master named Seong San calls this don't know mind. So the benefits of cultivating don't know mind are seeing things and people in your life with new eyes 
And maybe being suddenly grateful for what you had previously taken for granted. Another benefit would be more creative problem solving as you looked at things with a new perspective. As you asked yourself, how would a five-year-old look at this thing? What might I never have thought of before? What new questions might I ask about this? Another benefit would be that you would stop going through the motions in this one area of your life that you decided to approach with beginner's mind or don't know mind. And you might become more playful or even have fun doing that thing or notice things you hadn't noticed before. Maybe even recover a sense of wonder at the beauty of the world and maybe even a sense of sorrow at the sadness of the world where it hurts everywhere. Having an open mind or a useful ignorance is a difficult spiritual practice for people like me, people like many of you that I know who are people who like to get A pluses, we're people who like to ace the test, we're people who like to be good at something and we don't really like to be learners. Something new comes along, things change, folks start using different pronouns or refusing to identify as one of two genders and they're saying, I'm somewhere in between. And you learn, okay, I'm going to ask what are your pronouns and I'm going to examine any resistance that might be in my heart or mind to doing this. What's, what's the resistance about learning this new thing that you're showing me? When we're faced with difficult learning it's important to approach it with curiosity, not shame that you didn't know it before, not resentment that you have to learn this thing that's been thrust upon you. Curiosity, and that's a choice. So how do you make curiosity happen? How do you make beginner's mind or don't know mind, how do you make that happen when it's a difficult spiritual practice? First is, you slow yourself down. You slow your body down. You take a breath. You don't have to have a reaction to everything right away. You can take your time. You can say to someone, let me think about that and I'll get back to you. You can try to dial back your certainty. We human beings are addicted to certainty. We love it. If you can break your addiction to certainty, you'll have a better mind for learning. We can get very reactive and we can get very hot. And especially, as I've told you many times before, when we have that rising feeling of righteousness, we can start doing a lot of damage to one another. But sometimes we can slow our certainty and breathe more deeply and look at the situation with slower, more gentle eyes and ask different questions. Another way to cultivate your curiosity, to, to say, we are, we are going somewhere, and I know we'll get there, I just don't know how, 
I don't want to be certain anymore. So maybe we examine our expectations and examine our assumptions about situations, about one another. You think you know how a situation will play out. You think you know how a certain person's going to react. And sometimes we almost write a play and assign them a part. And then we can't really see or hear anything they're saying because we look at them through the lens of that part that we've assigned to them in that play that we wrote that they never agreed to be in. Or maybe you have a picture of how a day is going to go or how an event is going to go and you're so crushed when it doesn't go exactly as you pictured. And you feel like a failure just because it didn't go according to your picture. I learned from the 12-step program that unexamined expectations are premeditated resentments. Many of you have heard that before. It's not original with me. Unexamined expectations are premeditated resentments. A third way to cultivate beginner's mind is to detach your ego from being seen as being an expert. Ask five-year-old questions. Why? How does that work? Why does it work that way? Why do we do this that way? Why? Who is that? What are they doing? Ask yourself, how would this moment be if I approached it with curiosity instead? Right now, our world is topsy-turvy, wide open to change, maybe, wide open to people feeling like they have to take more control. There's a worldwide highly contagious pandemic that's keeping many of us in our homes, keeping those of us who have to go to work in uncomfortable masks and constant fear that we're going to bring something home to our children or our elders. Also, the whole democracy-loving world is watching in horror as our policing has become more warlike, more militaristic, more violent, more resistant to changes in training or changes in philosophy that stated police have taken a knee and then five minutes later they're tear-gassing people. It's horrifying to those who are just waking up to it. The violence has been there all along, but has mostly been, of course, directed at black, brown, and native bodies. We who live in bodies that pass for white are realizing and understanding that these other bodies who don't pass as white, these bodies are family, they're our friends, they're our relatives, they're our people and we are their people and we are all the people together, us. And when we who identify as white begin to enter the spaces our black and brown friends and relatives are occupying, standing against 
things the way they are, we also get knocked to the ground and pepper sprayed and shot with rubber bullets and beaten with police batons. And now they're knocking a 75-year-old white man to the ground in Buffalo because he, having been taught his whole life that police are nice, and he, having been raised, I imagine, with the white male privilege for 75 years, stops the police to ask them a question, and they bellow, move, and he doesn't move fast enough, and they shove him to the ground where he lies bleeding, and they walk on. This cannot continue, and we all know this cannot continue. Even the most complacent among us have seen this conversation explode all around them. It's exploding all around the world after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. What's going on? Well, the police just need better training. Really? Can you be absolutely sure that's true, that they just need better training? Well, they're just a few bad apples. Really? Can you be absolutely sure that that's true? Just a few bad apples? Many people are realizing that is not true. That this is deeply embedded in our culture. And find out. I want you to find out. Look at this with new eyes. Look at this with curiosity. You don't have to have an opinion. Just find out. What is the backstory on these oppressed, marginalized peoples? who are our friends and relatives, those of us who identify as white, and those of us who identify as people of color, we are all each other's relatives, and we are all responsible for this. I make a lot of mistakes when I talk about these issues, as do a lot of people who identify as white. And I cannot afford to be crushed and stopped and paralyzed by my mistakes I cannot feel like, oh, it's better just not to say anything. (laughs) As my friend Meg Riley said, the other Meg in Unitarian Universalism, (laughs) we either do the work and make mistakes or we don't do the work. Thank you, Meg. And so we do the work and make mistakes. And hopefully we look at things with new eyes and we make new mistakes. We use beginner's mind to see things differently and we make different mistakes. And so I'll say, I'm going to end with just saying that uh, this whole thing, because I was raised Christian, reminds me of the parable that Rabbi Jesus told about the sower of the seeds. And he's sowing seeds and some of the seeds land on the footpath. So it's, of course, hard packed from foot traffic and no seeds can really grow there. And some of the seeds fall on ground that's already overgrown with weeds and undergrowth and the seeds just can't fight for the sun over there they get choked out by the weeds but some of the seed falls on ground that is receptive that is soft enough that is clear enough so that the seeds can get what they need and grow and that reminds me of beginner's mind maybe we can make a place in our mind that's cleared out of all the brambles and bushes and previous views, assumptions, things we were taught that don't work for us anymore. And maybe the seeds can grow. Maybe we can receive a new thought. Maybe we can 
find a new way of looking at things. Maybe we can see, in Reverend Al Sharpton's words, a new time and a new season. May it be so. We extinguish this flame, but not the light of truth, the warmth of community, or the fire of commitment. These we carry in our hearts until we are together again. Remember the way of the wind and breathe and blow. Remember the way of the fire and sparkle and glitter and glow. Remember the way of the water and ebb and flow. Remember the way of the earth and grow. Go in peace. This is a production of the First Unitarian Universalist Church of Austin. For more information, go to our website at austinuu.org.